If you would, join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 11, as we do when we're going through a book or a letter, we pick up where we left off the previous Sunday. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, you indeed are the divine instructor. We are ignorant. We need instruction. And Father, the instruction that you provide leads to life, for your word points to Jesus Christ. Indeed, as we sang, we desire to see him. Father, thank you for your word. May it indeed feed us today as we grow up and mature in the faith that you have given to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How is something emphasized in God's word? Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 Jesus quotes that passage in his earthly ministry. We read this proverb, every word of God proves true. We should be then paying attention to every word. But as you see this written word, there, there's no word processing um, uh, elements to, to get our attention. There is no bold face. There is no underline. There's no italics. There's no highlighting in yellow. There's no word processing features here. But, but what do we have? We have repetition. I mean, if you look at John's gospel, count the number of times Jesus says, truly, truly. I believe King James Version, verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly. I don't know about you all, but that gets my attention. In Philippians 4, verse 4, Paul writes, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. It's good enough, right? But what does he say? Again, I will say rejoice. Here we are in Acts this longest narrative, Acts 10, 1 through eleven eighteen, 18. Uh, Luke, the human author, and God, the divine author, gives a lot of attention to this particular event in biblical history. He, he draws attention to it by repeating it. He, notice Peter's vision is, is told three times. A tale of two conversions. We've been in the past two weeks. It's a dramatic development. It's a watershed moment along the lines of Pentecost. It's along the lines of Saul, the Pharisee, coming to faith in Christ. It's, it's Cornelius, the Gentile, the Roman centurion, coming to faith in Christ. It's the book's turning point. It's the longest narrative in Acts. It's about how God brought Jew and Gentile together, Peter and Cornelius together at the table in fellowship, but... More importantly, in Christ. He brought them together in Christ. For the past two weeks, our, our focus has been on the conversion 
first of Peter and then of Cornelius. And today our focus is going to be on the effects that this had on the church. Here we are in Acts, this record of the continuing expansion and ongoing growth of the church. Indeed, the very title of our series, I hope, is helpful to you. It's helpful to me. Looking back at our history, what God has done, moving forward in our mission, what God will do now through His Spirit among us. Acts reminds us that Christianity is grounded in the actions of God in history. At heart, Christianity is not what we do. At its heart is what God has done and still does. And because Acts is this record, it provides both an anchor and an engine for us. It orients us back to the Word of God and the work of God. In other words, Acts, like all of God's Word, should both hold us back to the truth, but it also should push us forward into being used by God to to, um, proclaim that truth. Well, where are we? Well, we're in Acts 11, but where are we? We're somewhere 10 to 15 years after the resurrection, after Pentecost, probably the mid-40s AD. And if this narrative account, in particular these first 18 verses of chapter 11, could, could be seen as a play, then it's, it's a play in three acts. Protest, presentation, and praise. Protest, presentation, and praise. Join with me as I read this passage. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's look at the protest. Verses 1 through 3, Peter encounters criticism. Word gets back to Jerusalem from Caesarea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. They weren't just exposed to the word of God. They just didn't hear it, but they embraced it. They heard the gospel and they responded by, as it were, taking hold of it. It's a positive response to the gospel. If you've been looking at table talk, it's Paul is rejoicing at the positive response that the believers in Thessalonica had to the gospel. Same here. Uh, they are welcoming it with the heart. It's, it's Jesus' parable of the soils that he illustrated. This is what the kingdom of light, God is like, and, and, and we're seeing it. Um, you see in chapter 8, verse 14, of another situation in Samaria where um, it says, um, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, So the word gets back that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But Peter, on account of that, receives criticism. Uh, The the circumcision party, uh, not just those Jews, but but in particular uh, a a subset of Jews, the circumcision party, kind of a faction uh, who were were insistent on on these purity laws and these laws of clean and unclean. in Acts, uh, later in Acts, in Acts 15 in Galatians, you will hear it referred to as a circumcision party as well. And they charged Peter, they criticized him and said, he's making himself ritually unclean by visiting with Gentiles, not only going into their homes, but eating with them. You see, what mattered more to them than news that Gentiles had come to faith in Christ, what mattered more to them was that that. They wanted to know why Peter would violate laws. News had reached them that people had come to faith in Jesus and they are concerned as to why Peter would violate laws. Here's a prejudice, this almost insurmountable prejudice between Jew and Gentile that how can that be overcome? As we've been seeing, food and table fellowship are a big deal. What's what's a big deal for us? What what prevents us from fellowship with one another? Are there things in your life, in my life, I got to look in the mirror, that, yeah, they're believers, but I really don't want anything to do with them. What's a big deal that, that gets in the way of expressing in Visible form, as it were, the invisible reality of people being united in Christ. It's, it's worth asking ourselves, what ways are we not rejoicing, but rather tempted to criticism? I remember sitting on the front porch of a house in Norfolk, Virginia years ago. I lived with a number of guys, and one of my housemates was involved in an urban ministry. And yes, we were praying that God would use Greg to, to bring the gospel to bear in this crack-infested neighborhood of, of, of Norfolk, Virginia. And man, people came to faith in Christ. 
Was I tempted to rejoice or was I tempted to criticize Greg? Thankfully, I think God enabled all of our house to rejoice in that rather than to criticize his maybe particular method of actually moving from our house and living down there among the people. Here's a crisis. We're at the edge of a crisis in the early church. It's really, in many ways, the first big internal problem. It takes a whole council of the church to settle it. Will this situation lead to some kind of permanent disunity? Are there going to be two classes of Christian, kind of Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian? How's Peter going to get out of this jam? He's being criticized. Is he going to criticize back? Is he going to attack back? Uh, But you know what? As we've been seeing, Peter changed. Peter changed personally. Now the question is, will the church? Will the church change? Peter is accused of violating laws, but now he's going to answer the objections. And his manner of convincing is a model for us. Let's look at Verses 4 through 17, this presentation that Peter makes. Peter defends his actions. But you notice he's not defensive. He's not arrogant. He's, he's humble. Um, basically, he starts off by saying, okay, let me tell you what happened. And he tells the story, and it's backed by the six witnesses that come with him. Jewish Christians that accompanied him and coming back with him. He speaks of the divine vision, the divine vision. Um, Excuse me, it is a divine vision. Yeah, it's his vision, but it's it's of the divine. And we've seen that three times, and we see it in verses 4 through 10. And we see the divine command to, 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 to go with them, making no distinction. And we see... Also, divine preparation in verses 13 and 14, where Cornelius' report upon Peter's arrival, God gave the vision, God gave the command, God is doing the preparatory work, and then in verses 15 through 17, we see divine action. The Holy Spirit fell on those present. Remember last week? Peter's just getting going in his sermon, and the Holy Spirit, God, decides to act. Peter sees the divine hand of God in the vision, in the command, in the preparation, and certainly in the action. Once again, at center stage is Peter's change and his humility to admit it. He's telling them that the distinction between clean and unclean is gone. And remember, look back at verse 9 here. What God has made clean, do not call common. What has Peter seen? He's just seen animals, reptiles, birds, right? But look at verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. He's moved from animals and reptiles, birds, to people. God was using an illustration of which Peter could see to, to, to help him understand this, this truth that God makes no distinction. Peter's change, 
He recognizes, I'm not going to stand in God's way. Um, Remember the time Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen to him? He was going to, what, be betrayed, suffer, crucify, die, be raised from the dead. And what was Peter's response? Peter stood or attempted to stand in God's way. Not a good place to be. Peter attempted to keep Jesus from heading to the cross. My friends, if Jesus didn't go to the cross, we have no hope. We have no hope. So ask yourself another question as you look into the mirror, as it were. Um, Where are you standing in God's way? Are, Are we willing to change when God speaks? You see... We're not going to get visions and some extra biblical material. No, we have the completed canon. We have inscripturated truth. And so our change is not going to be because we get some vision and it's some illustration. No, we change because we encounter the living word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it penetrates, doesn't it? It goes well past the surface and it goes to the level of the heart because that's where the change has to be. We're so used to putting band-aids on things and putting up another coat of paint, aren't we? Change has got to come from the level of the heart and only the Lord has the instrument to get to the level of the heart. And look with me at verse 14. Standing at the center of this is a detail that was not provided earlier. It's a message of salvation. Um, So he will declare to you a message, a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. There's no mention of good deeds. Cornelius needed a rescue that he could not receive through or achieve through his best efforts. Remember, Cornelius was was nice, but was he new? Well, how does this message save you? I mean, I, I, I continue to run into people. They're like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Now, of course, there's an aspect of repent and believe. I mean, Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. But here it is, the good news. It's a message. How does a message save you? Well, the message reports action done on your behalf. It's news. My parents were living during the Second World War. My dad was actually in the Navy getting uh, some training ready to uh, finish college and, and go off. And, and 1945 comes along, and, and there's April... 1945, I believe, was the, the date when uh, Germany surrendered. And in, and in August, you have the, uh, the, nuclear, the atomic bombs in Japan. And, and by September, the Japanese are unconditionally surrendering. And you know the newspapers, if you, if you, if you go back and see it, war over. War over. Victory That's news. It was news. It changed my father's life. He did not have to go and fight. My mother and her family living in Wilmington, North Carolina, they no longer are going to have to use the ration cards anymore. You see, something that happened over there 
affected them where they were. It was news. It was news. It, it, it changed their lives. That's the gospel. It's news. And our response, it's our response to that news. It's the gospel used in the time of, I believe, was what is the announcement that the messenger who rides ahead, he comes back to the city and he's got news of the king's victory, news of the army's victory. The people no longer had to be afraid. Their king had been victorious. Their city was safe. It's news. What was the response of Cornelius and the others to this news? They were given repentance. They were granted repentance. Let's, before we go on, let's ask that question of ourselves. What's our response to this message by which you will be saved? When you hear the message by which you will be saved, how do you respond? Oh God, I've got to do more. I'm not worthy of this. I've got to work harder. No, my friends, just like the newspaper headlined victory war over. What do you do with news? You believe it. You believe it and your life is changed because Christianity alone begins with what God has done. Someone said it begins with an, a triumphant indicative, a statement of fact. The protest was met with the patient presentation by Peter of God's actions. Well, what would follow? What would follow Peter's argument, his logical, patient argument? Well, his argument would prove convincing and irrefutable. And in verse 18, we see praise. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What's their initial response? To this divine, this report of divine action, silence. They fell silent. F.F. Bruce, Bible commentator, said this Their criticism ceased, their worship began. Their criticism ceased, their worship began. They're speechless. Their criticism has been reduced to silence. They had no further objections. They became quiet. If you go through the gospel accounts, time after time, Jesus encounters teachers of the law. They have a little discussion. And the teachers of the law are silent. They can't say anything. But then... That silence is broken. Then there is speech and they glorified God. They glorified God with a confession. You see, God is praised when you make statements that agree with God, what God has said and done. They're agreeing with this wonderful news that, that, that to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They praise God for his giving 
to both Jews and Gentiles the gift of repentance. They realized what Paul would later write in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What was their confession? What did they agree with God? Well, I said it a moment ago, repentance. It's the gift that leads to life. It's repentance unto life. And I hope later you'll take a look at the something to think about quotes. It's our larger catechism and our shorter catechism answering the question, what is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace. Here is repentance. It's a summary phrase for a response to the gospel. They've received the word of God and they've received repentance unto life. A change of heart. Uh, Jews understood repentance. They they understood that the central issue, that's why you had the sacrificial system, was, was sin. But this is a repentance that leads to life and it's available to everyone, Jew and Gentile, Equal opportunity. The religious Jews, the irreligious Gentiles. It's it's both for the good and the bad. Why? Why is this good news? Why is this a gift for both religious and irreligious, good and bad? It's because everyone, everyone is guilty and sinful. Everyone has entered into an estate of sin and misery because of the fall. You see, when we remember that salvation begins with the gift of repentance, our prejudices, our prejudices, which will always demand that the outsider, the person who is not like us, will meet some kind of performance standards. That kind of prejudice, it'll melt away. It'll melt away. You see, the root of this is God's gift. God has granted repentance that leads to life. The gift of repentance. It's it's the root. It's God's gift. But oh my friends, that root, as it's nourished, bears fruit, doesn't it? A changed and changing life. Change starts through repentance. You see, here's the beginning of a new community. It's diverse in makeup. It's going to be Jew and Gentile. It's equal in status before God. It is called to reflect not only the peace with God, but peace with one another. God's word makes it absolutely clear. It is not separate, but equal. That's been tried by some human institutions. It's not separate, but equal. No, my friends, it is together and equal, together and equal. Well, our passage reveals a pattern of the Christian life. I hope you'll take some time to read Repenting Always. It was a good reason to stick it in the order of worship or the bulletin again today, Repenting Always. You see, the Christian life is a life of repentance, and it's a life of moving from, as it were, protest to praise. You see, we move from being in a position of criticizing God to then being silent before Him and to then glorifying Him. The Christian life is one of change. It's movement. It's turning from, as Paul would write in his letters to the churches, and turning 
two. How? How does that turn take place? It's through the patient proclamation of God's word. The persevering proclamation of God's word. You see, the Gentile conversion here. It reveals God's mercy because our passage finally reveals the simple and yet utterly astounding mercy of God. How? Well, let me ask you this question. Did the Gentiles deserve to be included? Did they merit the gift of the gospel? Did they merit the gift of the Spirit? You see, over time, God's grace, and remember, God revealed himself as a gracious and merciful God to his people, right? Exodus 34. Somehow that truth, that idea had been replaced with the idea that somehow God's blessing and favor is merited. My friends, that's us. That's me. I know God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. So God, what can I do to make you like me today? Hey, God, if I do a few good things, can that outweigh the bad things that I did and want to do? You see, nothing could have shattered that mistaken view more quickly than Gentiles being included in the church. Nothing humbles us more than the mercy of God being given to ourselves and to others. Whether it's Jew, whether it's somebody who's real religious, or it's Gentile, some pagan who's absolutely, as it were, irreligious. Same problem, same solution. Paul makes that absolutely clear in his letter to the church in Rome. So where is this mercy found? It's found in the gospel in which God declares that through repentance and faith, we receive mercy. We don't get the curse that we deserve. And along with getting mercy, being given mercy, receiving mercy comes grace. You see, we get the blessing that Jesus deserved. My friends, may our lives individually and collectively reflect this ongoing movement to praise God for his glorious mercy and grace that's found in Jesus Christ and seen in his body the church let's pray almighty god We do acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And yet, Father, we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before him as he headed to the cross. Father, it's amazing that Jesus took your curse so that we Your people, your sinful people could receive your blessing. What an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and the sacrifice. Father, may your word that we have just heard take up residence in our life. And would, would it change us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior and our risen and reigning Lord. For your glory and for the good of your people now 
and forever. Amen.